The devil knows that his captives are quite secure while the grace of God and the finished work of Christ are faithfully, in quotes, proclaimed to them. So long as the only way in which sinners receive the saving virtues of the atonement is unfaithfully concealed. Whilst God's preemptory and unchanging demands for repentance is left out, whilst Christ's own terms of discipleship, i.e., how to become a Christian, Acts 11.26, in Luke 14.26, 27 and 33 are withheld and whilst saving faith is frittered down to a mere act of the will blind laymen will continue to be led by blind preachers only for both to fall into the ditch things are far far worse even in the orthodox sections of Christendom than the majority of God's own children are aware Things are rotten even at the very foundation for the very rare exceptions God's way of salvation is no longer being taught. Tens of thousands are ever learning points in prophecy, the meaning of the types, the significance of the numerals, how to divide the dispensations who are nevertheless unable to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3.7 of salvation itself unable because unwilling to pay the price Proverbs 23.23 which is a full surrender to God himself so far as the writer understands the present situation it seems to him that what is needed today is to press upon the serious attention of professing Christians such questions as When is it that God applies to a sinner the virtues of Christ's finished work? What is it which I am called upon to do in order to appropriate to myself the efficacy of Christ's atonement? What is it which gives me an actual entrance into the good of his redemption? The questions formulated are only three different ways of framing the same inquiry. Now the popular answer which is being returned to them is nothing more is required from any sinner than that he simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the preceding articles of this series we have sought to show that such a reply is misleading, inadequate, faulty, and that because it ignores all the other scriptures which set forth what God requires from the sinner. It leaves out of account God's demand for repentance with all that that involves and includes and Christ's clearly defined terms of discipleship in Luke 14. To restrict ourselves to any one scripture term of a subject, or a set of passages using that term results in an erroneous conception of it. They who limit their ideas of regeneration to the one figure of the new birth lapse into serious error upon it. 
So they who limit their thoughts on how to be saved to the one word, believe, are easily misled. Diligent care needs to be taken to collect all that Scripture teaches on any subject if we are to have a properly balanced and accurate view thereof. To be more specific, in Romans 10.13 we read, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now does this mean that all who have with their lips cried unto the Lord, who have in the name of Christ besought God to have mercy on them, been saved by Him? They who reply in the affirmative are only deceived by the mere sound of words, as the deluded Romanist is when he contends for Christ's bodily presence in the bread, because he said, This is my body. And how are we to show the papist is misled? Why, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So here, the writer well remembers being on a ship in a terrible storm off the coast of Newfoundland. All the hatches were battened down, and for three days no passenger was allowed on the decks. Reports from the stewards were disquieting, Strong men paled. As the winds increased and the ship rolled worse and worse, scores of men and women were heard calling upon the name of the Lord. Did he save them? A day or two later, when the weather cleared, those same men and women were drinking, cursing, card-playing. Perhaps someone asked, But does not Romans 10.13 say what it means? Certainly it does. But no verse of Scripture yields its meaning to lazy people. Christ himself tells us that there are many who call him Lord, to whom he will say, Depart from me, Matthew 7.22 and 23. Then what is to be done with Romans 10.13? Why, diligently compare it with all other passages which make known what the sinner must do ere God will save him. If nothing more than the fear of death or horror of hell prompts the sinner to call upon the Lord, he might just as well call upon the trees. The Almighty is not at the beck and call of any rebel who, when he is terrified, sues for mercy. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Proverbs 28.9 He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28.13 The only calling upon his name which the Lord heeds is that which issues from a broken penitent, sin-hating heart which thirsts after holiness. The same principle applies to Acts 16.31 and all similar texts. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. To a casual hearer that seems a very simple matter. Yet a closer pondering of those words should discover 
that more is involved than at first sight appears. Note that the apostle did not merely tell the Philippian jailer to rest on the finished work of Christ or trust in his atoning sacrifice. Instead, it was a person that was set before him. Again, it is not simply believe on the Savior, but the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12 shows plainly that to believe is to receive, and to be saved, a sinner must receive one who is not only a Savior, but Lord. Yea, who must be received as Lord before he becomes the Savior of that person. And to receive Christ Jesus the Lord, Colossians 2.6, necessarily involves the renouncing of our own sinful lordship, the throwing down of the weapons of our warfare against him, and the submitting to his yoke and rule. And before any human rebel is brought to do that, a miracle of divine grace has to be wrought within him. And this brings us more immediately to the present aspect of our theme. Saving faith is not a native product of the human heart, but is a spiritual grace communicated from on high. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.9. It is of the operation of God, Colossians 2.12. It is by the power of God, 1 Corinthians 2.5 A most remarkable passage on this subject is found in Ephesians 1.16-20. There we find the Apostle Paul praying that the saints should have the eyes of their understanding enlightened, that they might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to the working of of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Note the strong expressions here used, not merely the power of God or the greatness of it, but the exceeding greatness of his power to usward. Note too, the standard of comparison. We believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God put forth his mighty power when he resurrected Christ. There was a mighty power seeking to hinder even Satan and all his hosts. There was a mighty difficulty to be overcome, even the vanquishing of the grave. There was a mighty result to be achieved, even the bringing to life one who was dead. None but God himself was equal to a miracle so stupendous. Strictly analogous is that miracle of grace which issues in saving faith. The devil employs all his arts and powers to retain his captive. The sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, and can no more quicken himself than he can create a world. His heart is bound fast with the grave clothes 
of worldly and fleshly lusts and only omnipotence can raise it into communion with God. Well may every true servant of the Lord emulate the Apostle Paul and pray earnestly that God will enlighten his people concerning this wonder of wonders so that instead of attributing their faith to an exercise of their own will, they may freely ascribe all the honor and glory unto him to whom alone it justly belongs. If only the professing Christians of this untoward generation could begin to obtain some adequate conception of the real condition of every man by nature, they might be less inclined to cavil against the teaching that nothing short of a miracle of grace can ever qualify any sinner to believe unto the saving of his soul. If they could only see that the heart's attitude toward God of the most refined and moral is not one whit different than that of the most vulgar and vicious, that he who is most kind and benevolent toward his fellow creatures has no more real desire after Christ than has the most selfish and brutal, then it would be evident that divine power must operate to change the heart. Divine power was needed to create, but much greater power is required to regenerate a soul. Creation is only the bringing of something out of nothing, but regeneration is the transforming not only of an unlovely object, but one who resists with all its might the gracious designs of the heavenly potter. It is not simply that the Holy Spirit approaches a heart in which there is no love for God, but he finds it filled with enmity against him and incapable of being subject to his law. Romans 8.7 True, the individual himself may be quite unconscious of this terrible fact, yet ready to indignantly deny it. But that is easily accounted for. If he has heard of little or nothing but the love, the grace, the mercy, the goodness of God, it would indeed be surprising if he hated him. But once the God of Scripture is made known to him in the power of the Spirit, once he is made to realize that God is the governor of this world, demanding unqualified submission to all his laws, that he is inflexibly just and will by no means clear the guilty, that he is sovereign and loves whom he pleases and hates whom he wills, that so far from being an easy-going, indulgent creator who winks at the follies of his creatures, he is ineffably holy, so that his righteous wrath burns against all the workers of iniquity. Then will people be conscious of indwelling enmity surging up against him. And nothing but the almighty power of the Spirit can overcome that enmity and bring any rebel to truly love the God of holy writ. Rightly did Thomas Goodwin the Puritan say, A wolf will sooner marry a lamb or a lamb a wolf 
than ever a carnal heart will be subject to the law of God, which was the ancient husband of it. Romans 7, 6. It is the turning of one contrary into another. To turn water into wine, there is some kind of symbolizing, yet that is a miracle. But to turn a wolf into a lamb, to turn fire into water, is a yet greater miracle. Between nothing and something, there is an infinite distance. But between sin and grace, there is a greater distance than can be between nothing and the highest angel in heaven. To destroy the power of sin in a man's soul is as great a work as to take away the guilt of sin. It is easier to say to a blind man, See, and to a lame man, Walk, than to say to a man that lies under the power of sin, Live, be holy, for there is that which will not be subject. Unquote. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, the Apostle describes the character of that work in which the true servants of Christ are engaged. It is a conflict with the forces of Satan. The weapons of their warfare are not carnal. As well might modern soldiers go forth equipped with only wooden swords and paper shields as preachers think to liberate the devil's captives by means of human learning worldly methods, touching anecdotes, attractive singing, and so forth. No, their weapons are the Word of God and all prayer. Ephesians six, seventeen, and 18. And even these are only mighty through God. That is, by His direct and special blessing of them to particular souls. In what follows a description is given of wherein the might of God is here seen, namely, in the powerful opposition which it meets with and vanquishes, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Herein lies the power of God when he is pleased to thus put it forth in the saving of a sinner. The heart of that sinner is fortified against him. It is steeled against his holy demands, his righteous claims. It is determined not to submit to his law, nor to abandon those idols which it prohibits. That haughty rebel has made up his mind that he will not turn away from the delights of this world and the pleasures of sin and give God the supreme place in his affection. But God has determined to overcome his sinful opposition and transform him into a loving and loyal subject. The figure here used is that of a besieged town, the heart, its strongholds the reigning power of fleshly and worldly lusts are pulled down, self-will is broken, pride is subdued, and the defiant rebel is made a willing captive to the obedience of Christ. Mighty, 
through God points to this miracle of grace. There is one other detail pointed by the analogy drawn in Ephesians 1, 19-21, which exemplifies the mighty power of God, namely, and set him, Christ, at his own right hand in the heavenlies. The members of Christ's mystical body are predestinated to be conformed to the glorious image of their glorified head, in measure, now, perfectly, in the day to come. The ascension of Christ was contrary to nature, being opposed by the law of gravitation. But the power of God overcame that opposition and translated his resurrected son bodily into heaven. In like manner, his grace produces in his people that which is contrary to nature, overcoming the opposition of the flesh and drawing their hearts unto things above. How we would marvel if we saw a man extend his arms and suddenly leave the earth, soaring upward into the sky. Yet still more wonderful is it when we behold the power of the Spirit causing a sinful creature to rise above temptation, worldliness and sin, and breathe the atmosphere of heaven, when a human soul is made to disdain the things of earth and find its satisfaction in things above. The historical order in connection with the head in Ephesians 1.19 and 20 is also the experimental order with regard to the members of his body. Before setting his son at his own right hand in the heavenlies, God raised him from the dead. So before the Holy Spirit fixes the heart of a sinner upon Christ, he first quickens him into newness of life. There must be life before there can be sight, believing, or good works performed. One who is physically dead is incapable of doing anything. So he who is spiritually dead is incapable of any spiritual exercises. First, the giving of life unto dead Lazarus, and then the removing of the grave clothes which bound him hand and foot. God must regenerate before there can be a new creature in Christ Jesus. The washing of a child follows its birth. When spiritual life has been communicated to the soul, that individual is now able to see things in their true colors. In God's light, he sees light. Psalm 36, 9 He is now given to perceive by the Holy Spirit what a lifelong rebel he has been against his Creator and Benefactor, that instead of making God's will his rule, he has gone his own way, that instead of having before him God's glory, he has sought only to please and gratify self, even though he may have been preserved from all the grosser outward forms of wickedness, he now recognizes that he is a spiritual leper, a vile and polluted creature, utterly unfit to draw near, still less to dwell with him who is ineffably holy, and such an apprehension makes him feel that his case is hopeless.
There is a vast difference between hearing or reading of what conviction of sin is and being made to feel it in the depths of one's own soul. Multitudes are acquainted with the theory who are total strangers to the experience of it. One may read of the sad effects of war and may agree that they are indeed dreadful. But when the enemy is at one's own door, plundering his goods, firing his home, slaying his dear ones, he is far more sensible of the miseries of war than ever he was or could be previously. So an unbeliever may hear of what a dreadful state the sinner is in before God and how terrible will be the sufferings of hell. But when the Spirit brings home to his own heart its actual condition and makes him feel the heat of God's wrath in his own conscience, he is ready to sink with dismay and despair. Here, do you know anything of such an experience? Only thus is any soul prepared to truly appreciate Christ. They that are whole need not a physician. The one who has been savingly convicted is made to realize that none but the Lord Jesus can heal one so desperately diseased by sin, that he alone can impart that spiritual health, holiness, which will enable him to run in the way of God's commandments, that nothing but his precious blood can atone for the sins of the past, and not but his all-sufficient grace can meet the pressing needs of the present and future. Thus, there must be discerning faith before there is coming faith. The Father draws to the Son, John 6:44 by imparting to the mind a deep realization of my desperate need of Christ, by giving to the heart a real sense of the inestimable worth of Him, and by causing the will to receive Him on His own terms. Arthur Pink Study number 5 Profiting from the Word the Scriptures and Joy. The ungodly are ever seeking after joy, but they find it not. They busy and weary themselves in the pursuit of it, yet all in vain. Their hearts being turned from the Lord, they look downward for joy where it is not, rejecting the substance they diligently run after the shadow, only to be mocked by it. It is the sovereign decree of heaven that nothing can make sinners truly happy but God in Christ. But this they will not believe, and therefore they go from creature to creature, from one broken cistern to another, inquiring where is the best joy to be found. Each worldly thing which attracts them says, It is found in me but each disappoints. Nevertheless, they go on seeking it afresh today in the very thing which deceived them yesterday. If after many trials they discover the emptiness of one creature comfort, 
Then they turned to another, only to verify our Lord's word. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. John 4.13 Going now to the other extreme, there are some Christians who suppose it is sinful to rejoice. No doubt many of our hearers will be surprised to hear this, but let them be thankful that they have been raised in sunnier surroundings and bear with us a moment while we labor with those less favored. Some of our hearers have been taught largely by implication and example rather than by plain inculcation that it is a duty to be gloomy. They imagine that feelings of joy are produced by the devil appearing as an angel of light. They conclude that it is well nigh a species of wickedness to be happy in such a world of sin as we are in. They think it is presumptuous to rejoice in the knowledge of sin forgiven, and if they see a young Christian so doing, they tell him, It will not be long ere he is floundering in the slough of despond. To all such, we tenderly urge the prayerful pondering of the remainder of this article. Rejoice evermore, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It surely cannot be unsafe to do what God has commanded us. The Lord has placed no embargo on rejoicing. No, it is Satan who strives to make us hang up our harps. There is no precept in Scripture bidding us grieve in the Lord always. And again, I say grieve, but there is an exhortation which bids us rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. For praise is comely for the upright. Psalm 33, 1. Here, If you be a real Christian, and it is high time you tested yourself by Scripture and make sure on the point, then Christ is yours. All that is in Him is yours. He bids you eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Song of Solomon 5.1 The only sin you may commit against this banquet of love is to stent yourself. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Isaiah 55, 2 is spoken not to those already in heaven, but to saints still on earth. This leads us to say that we are profited from the word when we perceive that joy is a duty. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Philippians 4, 4. The Holy Spirit here speaks of rejoicing as a personal, present, and permanent duty for the people of God to carry out. The Lord has not left it to our option whether we should be glad or sad, but has made happiness an obligation. Not to rejoice is a sin of omission. Next time you meet with a radiant Christian, do not chide him ye dwellers in Doubting Castle, but chide yourselves. Instead of being so ready to call into question the divine spring of his mirth, 
judge yourself for your doleful state. It is not a carnal joy which we are here urging, by which we mean a joy which comes from carnal sources. It is useless to seek joy in earthly riches, for frequently they take unto themselves wings and fly away. Some seek their joy in the family circle, but that remains entire only for a few short years at most. No, if we are to rejoice evermore, it must be in an object that lasts forevermore. Nor is it a fanatical joy we have reference to. There are those with an excitable temperament who are only happy when they are half out of their minds. But terrible is the reaction. No, it is an intelligent, steady, hard delight in God himself. Every attribute of God, when contemplated by faith, will make the heart sing. Every doctrine of the gospel, when truly apprehended, will call forth gladness and praise. Joy is a matter of Christian duty. Perhaps a hearer is ready to exclaim, My emotions of joy and sorrow are not under my control. I cannot help being glad or sad as circumstances dictate. But we repeat, Rejoice in the Lord is a divine command, and to a large extent, obedience to it lies within one's own power. I am responsible to control my emotions. True, I cannot help being sorrowful in the presence of sorrowful thoughts, but I can refuse to let my mind dwell upon them. I can pour out my heart for relief unto the Lord and cast my burden upon Him. I can seek grace to meditate upon His goodness, His promises, the glorious future awaiting me. I have to decide whether I will go and stand in the light or hide among the shadows. Not to rejoice in the Lord is more than a misfortune. It is a fault which needs to be confessed and forsaken. We are profited from the word when we learn the secret of true joy. That secret is revealed in 1 John 1, 3 and 4. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Ah, when we consider the littleness of their fellowship with God, the shallowness of it, it is not to be wondered at that so many Christians are comparatively joyless. We sometimes sing, O happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Well may this glowing heart rejoice and tell its raptures all abroad. Yes, but if that happiness is to be maintained, there must be a continued steadfast occupation of the heart and mind with Christ. It is only where there is much faith and consequent love that there is much joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
There is no other object in which we can rejoice always. Everything else varies and is inconstant. What pleases us today may fall on us tomorrow. But God is always the same. To be enjoyed in seasons of adversity as much as in times of prosperity. As an aid to this, the very next verse says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Philippians 4.5 Be temperate in connection with all external things. Do not be taken with them when they seem most pleasing, nor troubled when displeasing. Be not exalted when the world smiles upon you, or dejected when it scowls. Maintain a stoical indifference to outward comforts. Why be so occupied with them when the Lord himself is so near? If persecution be violent, if temporal losses be heavy, the Lord is a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1 Ready to support and succor those who cast themselves upon him. He will care for you, so be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, 6 Worldlings are haunted with carking care, but the Christian should not be. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and your joy might be full. John 15:11. As these precious words of Christ are pondered by the mind and treasured in the heart, they cannot but produce joy. A rejoicing heart comes from an increasing knowledge of and love for the truth, as it is in Jesus. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah 15:15. Yes, it is by feeding and feasting upon the words of the Lord that the soul is made fat, and we are made to sing and make melody in our hearts unto him. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Psalm 43, 4. As Spurgeon well said, With what exaltation should believers draw near unto Christ? who is the antitype of the altar. Clearer light should give a greater intensity of desire. It was not the altar as such that the psalmist cared for, for he was no believer in the heathenism of ritualism. His soul desired spiritual fellowship, fellowship with God himself in very deed. What are all the rites of religion unless the Lord be in them? What indeed but empty shells and dry husks? Note the holy rapture with which David regards his Lord. He is not his joy alone, but his exceeding joy. Not the fountain of joy, the giver of joy, or the maintainer of joy, but the joy itself. The margin hath it, the gladness of my joy, i.e., the soul, the essence, 
the very bowels of my joy. Unquote. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3.17 and 18 Ah, that is something of which the worldling knows nothing. Alas, it is an experience to which so many professing Christians are strangers. It is in God all the fount of spiritual and everlasting joy originates. From Him it all flows forth. This was acknowledged of old by the church when it said, All my springs are in thee. Psalm 87, 7 Happy the soul who has been truly taught this secret. We are profited from the word when we are taught the great value of joy. Joy is to the soul what wings are to the bird enabling us to soar above the dregs of earth. This is brought out plainly in Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The days of Nehemiah marked a turning point in the history of Israel. A remnant had been freed from Babylon and returned to Palestine. The law, long ignored by the captives, was now to be established again as the rule of the newly formed commonwealth. There had come a remembrance of the many sins of the past and tears not unnaturally mingled with the thankfulness that they were again a nation, having a divine worship and a divine law in their midst. Their leader, knowing full well that if the spirit of the people began to flag they could not face and conquer the difficulties of their position, said to them, This day is holy unto the Lord. This feast we are keeping is a day of devout worship. Therefore mourn not, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Confession of sin and mourning over the same has its place and communion with God cannot be maintained without it. Nevertheless, when true repentance has been exercised and things put right with God, we must forget those things which are behind and reach forth unto those things which are before. Philippians 3.13 And we can only press forward with alacrity as our hearts are joyful. How heavy the steps of him who approaches the place where a loved one lies cold in death. How energetic his movements as he goes to meet his bride. Lamentation unfits for the battles of life. Where there is despair, there is no power for obedience. If there be no joy, there can be no worship. My brethren and sisters, there are tasks needing to be performed service to others requiring to be rendered, temptations to be overcome, battles to be fought. 
and we are only experimentally fitted for them as our hearts are rejoicing in the Lord. If our souls are resting in Christ, if our hearts be filled with a tranquil gladness, work will be easy, duties pleasant, sorrow bearable, endurance possible, neither contrite remembrance of past failures nor vehement resolutions will carry us through. If the arm is to smite with vigor, it must smite at the bidding of a light heart. Of the Savior himself it is recorded, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Hebrews 12.2 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.